0: Hi everybody. Thanks so much for coming. I'm Laura Odada with the Cato Institute. Today we're going to be talking about cybersecurity legislation with a few bills pending on the Senate side. I'm glad you're all here and more to hear our speakers talk about some of the issues that will come up with that. Our first speaker today is Jim Harper. He's Cato's Director of Information Policy Studies. He works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. Jim was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. And he's also the editor of privacilla.org, a web based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy. Following that will be Jerry Brito, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and the director of its technology policy program. He also serves as an adjunct professor of law at George Mason University. His work focuses on technology and telecommu- telecommunications policy, and he created openregs.org, an alternative interface to the federal government's regulatory docking system. And he's also the co creator of the accountability website Stimulus Watch. We'll have a third speaker who's not quite here yet, but hopefully he'll join us shortly. And that's Ryan Radia, who's the Associate Director of Technology Studies at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. His research areas include, not surprisingly, information privacy, intellectual property, electronic speech, telecommunications, and Internet freedom. Ryan also blogs the Technology Liberation Front, a technology policy blog. And with that, I will turn things over to Jim.
1: Thank you, Laura, and thanks to all of you for being here today. Uh, it's really nice out, so you're making a sacrifice in, in being here, and I appreciate it. Um, since Ryan hasn't arrived yet, I'll let you know before before he gets here that uh, his bio on the CEI homepage is totally lifted from mine on Cato. So um, this 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 afternoon, maybe after the event, go go check out our bios, and you'll see that he's a huge copyright violator. Um, but that's not our topic today, obviously. Cybersecurity is an issue that, that all of us have been interested in for quite some time. And I think maybe it's fair to say that uh, none of us are satisfied that Congress is equipped to regulate in this area, certainly not yet. Uh, you may have come today with a, with a framing to the issue, and this is the way it's, it's being set up on Capitol Hill right now. Uh, which bill is the right bill? Is it McCain in the Senate? Is it the Lieberman-Collins bill? Is it the Rogers bill over here or the Lundgren bill? Uh, I, don't think, I don't think we want to embrace that framing here because the questions are more basic. Uh, we're going to talk about what is cybersecurity and how is it being talked about, uh, what, the, what are the solutions, and, again, uh, is Congress in a position to participate in the solutions. First, I'll say that uh, I, I, I use the word cybersecurity nowadays, but for a long time I've been a doubter of the cyber prefix. Uh, if, you talk to, if you talk to tech people people who are actually working on technologies, rarely do they ever say cyber. They don't say I went and cyber secured th- this computer. Uh, I've, I've cyber fixed this cyber problem. Um, because they think about these problems with more precision. Cyber security uh, and cyber whatever, these are generalizations that we use in common language uh, that aren't necessarily uh, ways of talking about these problems that are that are fixing on the actual problems and guiding us toward real solutions. So I've often said that that when I hear the word cyber I think snake oil. Um, that's not absolutely true. People are using the word cybersecurity here to try to capture all the different things that are involved. Uh, but when you hear cyber realize that you're talking about a huge generalization. Cyber really is best thought of as a variety of problems in securing computers, networks, and data. Uh, thousands of different problems, Uh, and these problems will be addressed by tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of different actors over a long period of time. Uh, There's not going to be any solution that fixes cybersecurity, just like there's been no solution that fixes physical security. We have security in the physical area because we have tens of thousands of years of experience with it. We have solutions in the physical security area that are pretty good, that are adequate. And our goal in the area of cybersecurity is to get security for computers, networks, and data that are good enough to serve. So think about, think about this problem as being thousands of different problems, not one. Again, to be addressed by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of different actors over a long period of time. What do you do when you have a huge array of problems? Is it the best thing to do to centralize your attack on those, on those problems? Or should you perhaps instead think about assigning responsibility for solving those problems to the actors that are best positioned to address them. Well, I think experience shows that centralizing is often a mistake. The knowledge available, though we may study it as hard as we possibly can, the knowledge available to us in Congress, the knowledge available to federal agencies uh, is very, very limited compared to the knowledge that rests with the people who own and operate the computers, networks, and data. Not only that, the incentives are in the right place with the owners of computers and networks and data, because if they fail to secure their infrastructure, they begin losing money from the first instant. So the the incentive set is probably right for the owners of all the infrastructure that we'd like to have secured. The incentive structure is not the same when federal agencies or when Congress address these problems. Congress gets paid whether it fixes the problem or not. Federal agencies get paid whether they fix the problem or not. So rather than centralizing which is the the major theme of the cybersecurity legislation we've seen, assigning responsibility or leaving responsibility where it already is. That is, the owners of computers, networks, and data have that responsibility now and they should keep it. The cybersecurity legislation we've seen uses a lot of big words. One of my favorite is cybersecurity performance requirements from the Lieberman-Collins bill. That's a big word that means regulation and I was really impressed when I read that bill uh, to realize all the language, all the structure, all the comings and goings that amount to a regulatory regime for cybersecurity, well, i don 't know that any federal agency is going to be in a position to write the regulations that fix this problem. Instead, you saw a lot of things you might call 21st century paperwork violations. Have you certified to the federal agency? that you've instituted a program to try to address cybersecurity. Well, how much time is going to be spent on certifying to federal agencies that work has been done that's not being spent on actually getting that work done? Uh, in, the, in the privacy area, which is, a, which is a focus of mine, I was impressed, and this is somewhat security-related too, that under uh, security regulations under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, financial services providers, which had gone through all the paperwork requirements, still we're suffering security <coughs> breaches. Well, what if they'd taken the money that they spent on going through the paperwork and had devoted that to actually securing their infrastructure? There are no quick fixes and regulatory requirements, especially those that require a great deal of paperwork, certification, et cetera, et cetera, are not likely to improve things in the cybersecurity area. Uh, something that I've found particularly concerning is the proposal for information sharing or the proposals for information sharing. Now, there's nothing wrong with information sharing but mandated information sharing is an odd bird, an odd duck. Um, everybody should share information appropriately, and there's no necessary mandate to do that. Think of another area like, uh, like Homeland Security. See something, say something. Think of areas like the Bank Secrecy Act and suspicious activity reporting. What these things do, well, they seem like the right thing. What they do is they encourage over-reporting. Uh, a financial services provider that doesn't provide any suspicious activity reports to its regulator will come under suspicion on the part of the regulator that it's not actually looking out for suspicious activity. So you get financial services providers that report non-suspicious financial activity in order to meet the regulatory need to have suspicious things reported. If you have a mandated information sharing environment, you're very much likely to have companies reporting things in, as a way of showing information sharing without actual necessity for information sharing. Obviously there should be information sharing where a need arises, and information sharing will happen when the need does arise. But we don't need to create a legal mandate to do so, and we don't need to create a federal center for doing so. I'm particularly worried about the languages you see popping up in all the bills, if I'm not mistaken, (coughs) that allow information sharing notwithstanding any other provision of law. That is a huge, huge scythe cutting down unknown law that right now protects contracts, protects privacy, and perhaps protects security. Somebody who participates in this federally encouraged information sharing for cybersecurity purposes would not be subject to any other law. No state privacy tort. No state contract law. They wouldn't be subject to agreements they had entered into. The Privacy Act of 1974, the E-Government Act, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the Stored Communications Act, none of these laws would, pro- would apply if someone was information-sharing with these, with, with these information-sharing centers as proposed in the various bills. Um, that's concerning stuff, to see the rule of law go away uh, in, the information, in, in terms of information-sharing for cybersecurity purposes. Surely Congress can do a better job and think precisely about what laws stand in the way of information-sharing, if there are some and amend those appropriately so that information sharing can happen naturally and appropriately. I think Ryan will go into some of the legal, legal uh, uh, niceties more carefully. To set up uh, the discussion just a little bit more, I'll talk about the way cybersecurity is presented to you here on the Hill. Um, and that's the problem of threat exaggeration. I think one that Jerry will go into some. Uh, I'm particularly nonplussed when I hear about cyber terror and cyber war because cyber terror does not exist. Let me say that again and emphatically. Cyber terror does not exist. And cyber war may exist in a relatively limited realm. That is when there is an ongoing struggle for control of land or for the legitimacy or power of a government and communications devices or communications tactics are used to address that war. But war is a very distinct thing. Uh, and we tend to use the, war, the word war uh, inadvisedly at least uh, here on the hill um, cyber war is a very rare thing cyber terror actually doesn't exist i'll say it again because there really is no way to terrorize people using computers uh... the most, the most dangerous threats out there uh, may take down the financial services system for a few days at at worst now that doesn't terrorize i think the reaction for most people would be something more like having a snow day. I can't get cash out of the ATM so I can't buy gas so I can't come into work. It's not terrorizing and there's no legitimate threat that these things can be done again. So we often hear of cyber terrorists, we often hear of cyber war, and that's a way of goading you into believing that the threats are bigger than they actually are. Um, There are real problems out there. None of what I say should diminish the fact that cybersecurity is a host of very real problems. But the problems tend to be quite a bit more mundane than what you what you hear about. Uh, it involves patching your software, uh, behaving in ways that, that protect your your uh, computers, networks, and data. There are real um, there are real threats out there. You've talked, we've heard about the Stuxnet virus, uh, which was a very very well constructed uh, virus that had for a, for a period of time had its intended effect in Iran on the uh, on their nuclear weapons program. Uh, but there are the idea that the Stuxnet virus could be turned around and applied to just about anything else is precisely wrong. There's a really good 60 minutes piece you might go look up. And watch, watch and listen carefully to the, to the, to the speakers, uh, because some of them are working some angles. That is, some of them will make money if Congress dedicates uh, huge amounts of dollars to cybersecurity. Some of them don't know what they're talking about, and they say that the Stuxnet virus is now out in the wild and anything could happen. No, no, that was a very, very precisely written uh, piece of software, uh, written by people, probably affiliated with the U.S. government or the Israeli government Uh, at the the highest quality software programming you get. There's no script kitty that's going to turn Stuxnet out and and level it on dams or bridges or any other kind of infrastructure. So these kinds of exaggeration incline you to think that Congress has to act. And I think I've made a partial case at least that even Congress acting wouldn't solve these problems. It's going to be years long hundreds of thousands of people and institutions working on the different, the thousands of different problems. And if we leave responsibility where it is, with the private actors that own most of the infrastructure in the United States, we'll be better <coughs> off than if we have a regulatory environment and, a, and a, uh, an information sharing environment that's, that's uh, uh, really promiscuous, like the kinds of things we're, we're looking at in these bills. So with that, let me turn it over to Jerry Brito, and we'll hear some more. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jim. there we go. So uh, like Jim said, I'm going to talk to you today a little bit about uh, the threats and uh, why we, uh, how we should think about regulation. So there's been a lot of strong language around uh, cybersecurity, especially here on the Hill that Jim was alluding to. So let's look at some of that. Um, When we ask ourselves, what is the threat? What are we told? Well, here's Leon Panetta uh, at his confirmation hearing. He says, I have often said that there is a strong likelihood that the next Pearl Harbor that we confront could very well be a cyber attack that cripples our power systems, our greater our security systems, our financial systems, our government systems, right? I mean, Pearl Harbor, there were several thousand uh, uh, persons that died that day. Uh, here is Senator Carl Levin. Cyber weapons and cyber attacks potentially can be devastating, approaching weapons of mass destruction in their effects. Here is Senator Rockefeller just last month introducing legislation. He says, the prospect of mass casualty is what has propelled us to make cybersecurity a top priority this year. Admiral Mike Mullen, former Joint Chiefs Chairman, said that a cybersecurity threat is the only other threat that is on the same level as Russia's stockpile of nuclear weapons. Right, so, of course, <laughs> nuclear weapons can decimate a city, certainly cause mass casualty. Uh, this is Steven Shabinsky, who is the Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI Cyber Division, saying this at a recent security conference. He said, quote, the cyber threat can be an existential threat meaning that it can challenge our country's very existence or significantly alter our nation's potential, right? So wipe out America is the is potential of cybersecurity. So uh, that's, that's very strong language. And so what we need to ask ourselves uh, is what is the evidence for this kind of rhetoric that we see uh, in, in the public discourse around cybersecurity? So what is this evidence when you say, boy, you're making some, some real strong claims here, They will point to the breaches that we have seen, they will point to the cyber attacks that we have seen. So what is the evidence that they point to? Well first and foremost they point to denial of service attacks. And what are denial of service attacks? Denial of service attack is when a server is overwhelmed with requests for information. Usually it's a website uh, that has so much traffic go to it that it's overwhelmed and is taken down. This happened to the Senate website last summer when Anonymous took it down. Uh, The thing to know about um, DDOS attacks is that they're very real. Uh, They happen very frequently, all the time, I would say, Uh, but they are an inconvenience. Website goes down for a few hours, uh, maybe a day, it comes back up. Certainly nobody is injured, nobody dies, there are no mass casualties. Next you will see folks point to cyber espionage, which again, it's a very real threat. It's very serious, it's very bad, it's happening right now, but again it does not pose a risk of injury or death or, or real cyber doom. Next, we'll point to cyber weapons that have a kinetic effect. Right, now we're talking something more serious here. This is uh, something like Stuxnet. The idea is that a command can be sent through the network to a machine that will cause physical damage on the machine It potentially could injure or maim somebody or kill somebody next to the machine and cause a blackout, et cetera. Real physical damage as a result uh, of that. So the thing to know about this is that with denial of service attacks and cyber espionage, we can look at hundreds or even thousands of instances of this. We can point to it and say there's a lot of this going on. But what about real uh, uh, cyber weapons with kinetic effect? Well, there's just a few examples of these that people point to, so I can walk you through some of these. The first was in 2007 there was a blackout in Brazil that was reportedly caused by a uh, a, a cyber attack. The thing to know about this um, event was that after investigation, it was shown that this uh, was not a cyber attack. Uh, There was no cyber component at all. It was just due to a fire that was uh, nearby the power plant. But the thing to know about this is that even though it wasn't a cyber event, just looking at it as a blackout, there was no terror. People were, you know, were without power for a day or two, uh, but they were not terrorized and there were no uh, casualties. Uh, Next I'll point to the Aurora Project. This was in 2006. This was a simulation that was done at Idaho uh, National Labs. And what engineers did was that they set up a uh, power generator this is a giant a million dollar uh, piece of equipment and they went a few miles up the road and were able to uh, dial in to hack into the system and cause the machine to shake uncontrollably controllably and not quite explode but it caused severe damage somebody being you know next to it would have been hurt uh, could have potentially caused a blackout so w- this is a good proof of concept that a uh, kinetic Uh, effect can be carried out through a cyber attack. But what you need to know about this is, number one, this was a a, a simulation, it was staged on range. The folks who were hacking in knew the system uh, that they were uh, hacking into, and they let it happen, right? Somebody, uh, if this were a real power plant, somebody would have pulled uh, uh, a switch to to turn it off. Uh, Then we can uh, also hear about the Marushi Shire incident. This is in Queensland, Australia where uh, somebody hacked into the sewage uh, control software for the municipality in Marooshishire and uh, opened the valves and allowed sewage to spill out. And it spilled out into uh, a golf course, into other uh, properties. And so again, the thing to know about this is that uh, the person who did this was a disgruntled ex-employee. He was somebody who was denied a job by the municipality and he had formerly worked for the company that designed the control software. So it, he was an insider. He was a person who designed the software. as a person who was able to uh, accomplish this. So again, very specific. And again, uh, it was very inconvenient. Um, it was very stinky. Folks did not like it. But there were no casualties uh, and and nobody, you know, Nothing really of a cyber new scenario, and finally, like I can mention Stuxnet uh, again Stuxnet is a very uh, interesting piece of uh, of software uh, because as Jim mentioned it 's infected thousands of Windows machines around the world, but it only affected that one machine that was intended uh, that was the intended target. Um, and it did so in a way that was trying to be as silent as possible, it wasn't trying to shake the machine uncontrollably, it was trying to go undetected. Uh, so again, no mass casualties from this, no casualties whatsoever, in fact it was trying to be uh, undetected. So what can we conclude from all of this? It's that none of these, the denial of service attacks, cyber espionage, or even the uh, cyber weapons that we have seen, the kinetic cyber weapons that we have seen, none of these lend support to the overheated rhetoric that we hear. Right? There is a wide divergence uh, between the cyberdew scenarios and the few instances of actual cyber attack that we have so far witnessed. And another point I'd like to make is that we, I think, underestimate uh, how resilient we are to attacks. Uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying, I hope you can, you can tell, I'm not saying that kinetic cyber attack is impossible. It clearly is. There will be, uh, at some point in the future, a cyber attack. That happens, and you might see a blackout or something to that, to that effect. But I think that the probability of that happening is overestimated, and I also think that the severity may be overestimated as well. The reason is that we are incredibly resilient, right? Recently, the White House uh, held a, uh, a simulation for senators. They put on a simulation that included a cyber attack that causes a blackout in New York City. This was a few weeks ago. Uh, now, this is a classified uh, briefing that was given, so we don't know what it covered, right? Uh, I don't know if that simulation included uh, thousands of deaths or mass casualty events like another 9-11 or another Pearl Harbor. But I can look, what we can do is look at the evidence of real blackouts in New York City, right? Starting with a series of blackouts in the 1930s and going through in the 1970s there were blackouts and all the way through the 2003 Northeast blackout, which I'm sure we all remember. In each of these cases, there was no panic. There were few of any deaths, and power and other services were restored relatively quickly. Uh, Jim Lewis of CSIS, he's pointed out that, quote, the widespread blackout did not degrade US military capabilities, did not damage the economy, and caused neither casualty nor terror. So large modern economies are hard to defeat, right? Their their vulnerability to cyber attack, to dirty bombs, to other sort of exotic weapons is very routinely exaggerated. Uh, Computer networks are absolutely vulnerable to attack, but nations are not equally vulnerable. Countries like the U.S. that have an abundance of, uh, uh, of service and equipment and the ability to, uh, to come back quickly, they have experience restoring critical functions, and we're well-equipped to uh, overcome an attack if it happens. So what does this all mean? It means don't panic. Threat of harm from cyberspace is real, but we should not be panicking. Why? Because when you panic, when you make decisions out of fear, you run the risk of overreacting and making poor decisions. So, why do we think that we need regulation? Well, the need for legislation is premised on the idea that we don't have enough cybersecurity today, and that markets cannot uh, possibly uh, provide enough security ever. And this is articulated nicely by the or in the the uh, report of the CSIS Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th president, which is a very, very influential document in the push for, for cybersecurity legislation. And in it they say, quote, it is undeniable that an appropriate level of cybersecurity cannot be achieved without regulation, as market forces alone will never provide the level of security necessary to achieve national security objectives. Right? So there are two assertions that are happening here. One is we don't have enough cybersecurity today, and two, markets can never provide enough cybersecurity. So why is it, I guess the question then would be, what is the evidence uh, for these assertions, right? What evidence is there that we don't have the right amount of cybersecurity right now? Well, when you ask this question, you say, well, what makes you think we don't have enough cybersecurity? What you often hear back is, well, look at all the breaches that happen, right? All the ones that I just listed, right? This happens all the time, hundreds of breaches. This is terrible. And the thing to keep in mind about that is, Uh, that the fact that there are breaches is not evidence that we don't have enough cybersecurity. Because what that would mean is that enough cybersecurity would be 100% security. That the optimal amount of breaches would be zero breaches. And we know, number one, that's not uh, efficient, but not just that, it's probably impossible. Right, it would be too costly to achieve 100% uh, security. So right now, markets do provide a level of cybersecurity. It's not 100%, but I haven't seen anything but assertions about what the appropriate level of cybersecurity should be. It gets to the second question, which is that markets cannot ever provide the right amount of cybersecurity. And when you ask why that is, what they will say is that well, cybersecurity is a good that has a positive externality. And I'm not going to go too much into the economics right now. Uh, we can do that in QA if you like. Um, but a positive uh, externality. Uh, It would be hard for me to explain to you what externality is in in a short amount of time, but you have uh, uh, a good that has associated with it an effect external to the production of the good. You could have negative externality or positive externality. Negative externality is like pollution, right? Uh, Somebody has a uh, chemical plant, they pollute, they don't don't internalize the cost of the pollution. That cost is is, uh, uh, borne by somebody external to that, everybody else, and so they have no check on that, right, uh, and so they will pollute more than is optimal, uh, and that's why you need government regulation to, to uh, control that. That's negative externality. A positive externality is when you have uh, a good that has positive benefits that the producer can't capture all of it, right? A lot of the, uh, of the good is, is, is uh, taken by others, um, and so the theory is that because the producer can't capture all of the benefit, he will not produce any. An example I like to give is uh, a garden, right? I used to live near Logan Circle in Washington, D.C., and on my street there was uh, tons of beautiful gardens. Uh, a lot of the homeowners would plant these beautiful, beautiful gardens that we would walk up and down the street and you would really enjoy. And so when you think about it, uh, the owner is spending, is investing, is spending money in planting a garden out in front of his house, right? Let's say that they spend $100, in, you know, in putting out a beautiful garden. Why are they doing that? Well, it's because they're going, they're expecting to get a, a, a benefit from doing that. They're going to get enjoyment of enjoying their beautiful garden. So let's say, how much is that worth to them? Well, it's probably worth, they're going to get $200 worth of enjoyment. So $100 investment, they're going to get $200 worth of enjoyment from the uh, garden. Uh, it's worth for them to do it. Okay, so, so they do it. But everybody else who walks past the sidewalk is going to get lots of enjoyment from those flowers too. Right? So they're actually producing thousands of dollars in benefit from their $100 investment. They're producing thousands of dollars. But they can't capture that. They can't charge admission. They can't stop people from enjoying the garden. Right? So it's a positive externality. And so by the theory that because there's a positive externality and that the owner can't capture all of the value, it would mean that uh, they wouldn't do it at all. Well, no. We see gardens. They exist. Why? Because the benefit that they can capture is enough to incentivize them to do it, right? Even though there's a positive externalities that other people are going to enjoy. I would say the same is with security. Folks who own a nuclear power plant, right, they can't capture, so if they protect a nuclear power plant so that it avoids, uh, you know, a massive hundreds of billions of dollar damage to the country, uh, they can only capture a little bit of that, which is they save their investment. But That's enough uh, for them to have an incentive to do that. So. That's all I want to say and I hope uh, we have some time for Q&A, thank you.
3: Thank you and thanks to the Cato Institute. As Jim mentioned, I would like to focus on the information sharing question. There are very strong reasons why greater information sharing among private entities and in some cases between private entities and government should occur uh, to a greater level than it currently does. But figuring out how to, to enact legislation to, to make that possible and figuring out what information should be shared is a very difficult question. It's not a question that has been the subject, for instance, of uh, public hearings, which raises a serious concern about the transparency of this process. Unfortunately, I don't have for you a rigorous... Narrow definition of what a cybersecurity threat is to distinguish it from all the other information the companies have. But Congress doesn't have a rigorous definition either. My evidence of that is that uh, in the various bills floating around in both chambers, we see very broad definitions, uh, particularly in the, the Lieberman bill in the, and in the McCain bill in the Senate uh, and in the uh, CISPA bill that has uh, been reported out of. Uh, Committee in the House of Representatives. So language like a cybersecurity threat indicator may indicate or describe any action or attempt to gain unauthorized access to a system. That could mean a very wide array of information that we would not consider to be a real threat. On one hand, gaining unauthorized access could mean, for instance, a Russian or China-based hacker attempting to access the financial information of uh, of a million Americans, but it could also mean far more innocuous types of information. For instance, uh, under current law, uh, a teenage girl who establishes a Facebook account using a pseudonym because she doesn't want her teachers to be able to know what her posts to, to tie her posts to her actual identity, that student is actually gaining unauthorized access to a system because she's violating Facebook's terms of service and thus accessing their server without her permission, without Facebook's permission. I don't say that because I believe that that any of these bills will be used to target students, but to, to, to emphasize that a very broad exception to not only all of the privacy statutes, but also to all terms of service and private contracts between users and providers creates a very real possibility that information will be shared in ways that will not further cybersecurity objectives. This may involve, for instance, government agencies accessing individual information for purposes of ordinary law enforcement. One uh, bill, the Lieberman bill, uh, allows for any cybersecurity information to be shared with with law enforcement to, when it's when there's some basis to believe it might be connected to any crime. This could involve a serious cybersecurity crime. It could also involve uh, violating a gun registration law or engaging in unlawful internet gambling. The challenge is also compounded by the very real threat of government using this new exception to all laws and contracts and torts to pressure companies to hand over information that they might not want to to, to share. I believe, and I I think most uh, supporters of free markets support the property rights of companies to share information where not otherwise prohibited by a contract. But what happens when a company that has a very lucrative contract with, say, the National Security Agency is offered a situation where they can either share the contents of a huge number of their users' email, or perhaps lose the contract. This may sound like just some sort of a, a, a scare tactic used by privacy nuts, but according to former Quest CEO Joseph Nachio, his company actually lost a very lucrative contract because unlike three other major telecom companies, Quest refused to participate in the NSA Warrantless Wiretapping program in 2001. Nothing in any of the pieces of legislation that has currently been introduced prohibits government from leveraging contracts with private entities to to encourage them to share information that they currently cannot share, whether because of contract or because of ECPA or because of any of the other statutes. The, The question of what information should be shared and when really is largely for private entities to sort out among themselves. When a business contracts with a cloud provider like Salesforce to share information about its customers. The, the conditions under which that business's information, the customer's information, could be aggregated with other customers and with other providers should be dealt with through clauses and contracts, which, for instance, a business, a Salesforce or a cloud provider might say, we will share your information on a, 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 an anonymized basis when we believe it is reasonably necessary to protect a cybersecurity threat, we will not share this information. We may share this information. This sort of agreement is much better equipped to, to, to strike the balance between too much sharing and too little sharing than a, a blanket exception to all contracts, torts, and privacy laws. To be sure, there may be existing statutes that bar information sharing that we should revisit. That's a discussion worth having. Is ECPA written too strictly, to, such that it limits information sharing? Perhaps. But instead of writing and, and enacting a bill that contains a blanket exception, we should look at the specific statutes in question, of which I, some, I, I've heard uh, from some in government that there may be over 100, there, I'm not aware of a public list, but the number is huge. Which statutes are in the way? And how can we reform them on a piecemeal basis? perhaps they sh- perhaps one blanket exception is worthwhile but if so let's understand what statutes are at, are at stake and how we can address them before we move forward with a bill that could be used in ways that we cannot uh, foresee today It's also important to ensure that if uh, if legislation is enacted that the, sh- the the information doesn't target legitimate uses of technologies that are privacy enhancing or anonymity enhancing. A number of technologies that can be used for bad, for nefarious purposes, can also be used for positive purposes. One good example is Tor, the onion router, which is used by uh, uh, dissidents across the world in countries ranging from China to the United States to uh, to communicate information that their governments don't like or to blow the whistle on wrongdoers in the private or public sector. But the, 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 the onion router, Tor, can be used to facilitate denial of service attacks that are much more difficult to detect because of the way in which information is routed around and the originator of an, a piece of a packet is, is obfuscated. So, if a, if a bill creates a new mechanism for internet service providers or for cloud providers to interfere, either voluntarily or quote unquote voluntary, but with government pressure it could create an avenue for a great deal of an anonymity-enhancing, privacy-enhancing technologies uh, to be limited by providers or for information such as the contents of emails to be shared with government agencies. While the, uh, the Lieberman bill does contain a, a clause uh, that requires that when, uh, when sh- information is shared that it be stripped of, of personally, identif- informa- personally identifiable information uh, where feasible, Other bills, such as uh, the McCain bill, don't contain such a provision, which means that the sharing of cybersecurity threat information in many of these pieces of legislation could involve sensitive personal information that is only tangentially related to a legitimate cybersecurity threat. These definitional questions are very difficult. They are they're largely best sorted out by the private sector, but if government is going to approach this by enacting new legislation, it's far better to err on the side of a narrowly worded statute and expand it as necessary, rather than starting out with a definition that could encompass a whole range of information that has nothing to do with actual cybersecurity threats. The, the, the current approach needs to be revisited, as, as Jim and Jerry have discussed, There are real cybersecurity problems, but postponing this a few months or a couple of years so we get it right is a far better idea than hastily enacting a 200-page bill whose definitions no one really understands. The solution to cybersecurity largely should rest in the hands of the companies that have an incentive to protect it, the critical infrastructure providers and the other companies that operate the systems that we rely on every day. They they need to work together, and they are working together to solve these problems. That's what we should be focusing on encouraging. Perhaps liberalizing antitrust standards to allow for uh, joint ventures and more uh, more, uh, collaboration between companies might be worth considering. That should be the first step, rather than gutting terms of service and contracts in a way that will limit experimentation, and allow for government to access a range of information uh, that today you cannot access without uh, a search warrant or other order based upon a showing of probable cause.